Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Last week we talked about Arminianism and Brevenian grace, and this week we are talking about Calvinism and grace. I'm not sure how long this one will be. And remember that Christ is the Cure is subscriber-supported. We're still trying to get uh, the, the top goal filled for patrons. So if you have enjoyed Christ the Cure, if you want to support Christ the Cure in some shape or form, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ the Cure. And let's just jump into it, Calvinism and grace. So when moving into the Calvinist position on grace, we must first note that Calvinists distinguish between common grace and special grace in a similar fashion as the Arminian. Um, the latter is our focus here, that is special grace. And with that, we immediately comes to points of divergence between the Calvinist and Arminian positions. As we stated before, the Arminian position presents a universal prevenient grace um, in different articulated forms, right? But still a universal and prevenient grace. And this universal prevenient grace can be resisted. We talked all about that last week. So if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, then go back and listen to last week's. This is contrary to the Calvinist conception of a particular grace. That is this grace that is only for those who are the elect. And this grace is irresistible. Now, this in effect actually makes up the I in TULIP, right? Um, it is irresistible grace. But many Calvinists prefer to call it effective, efficacious, invincible grace um, or effectual grace because of misconceptions that come from this designation of irresistible. And this is helpful or important to know because sometimes you'll see people talking about it and they'll use these other terms because they want to avoid the misconception of irresistible. It's the same concept that sometimes you'll see people say perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. Uh, because they can have different understandings. One puts more of an emphasis on the saints are persevering in the faith, and the other one is the saints are being preserved by God. But they're both the same concepts whenever you get past the terminology. Um, anyway, so closely related to this notion is the notion of effectual calling. And so this section will go into the Calvinist distinction between the general call and the effectual call but we will be describing the effectual call first, and then we'll make that proper distinction. So Calvinism and irresistible grace. So as with the Arminian position, uh, this grace is prevenient in so much as it goes before all Christ honoring responses. So this is important because sometimes you'll see Calvinists talking about, well, we do hold to prevenient grace, but on the other hand, you'll have other Calvinists who are like, no, we don't hold to prevenient grace. And basically, they're just trying to distinguish between that universal, resistible, prevenient grace that Arminians hold to versus a particular irresistible grace. But this grace is prevenient in a literal sense in that it comes before a Christ-honoring response. And so uh, this grace is completely effectual in that it will not fail to accomplish the task of bringing a people to God. It is irresistible or effectual. So in this, the Calvinist tradition has noted that this calling and grace does not violate the human will, but rather works in the man to change his will, wherein the man willingly comes to Christ. You will find this in the Confessions, uh, the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession. Uh, you'll find this in the Canons of Dort. This is not a violation of the human will. Calvinists never held to that. Now, 
It is important to say that there is a sense in which effectual grace can be resisted, but it's only temporarily, not finally. In the end, those who have the effectual calling of God or the effectual grace of God put upon them will come to faith. Um, the focus of this special grace is individual in that it is given to particular individuals chosen before the foundation of the world according to God's unconditional election, which is an election not based on foreknown actions of the human's response to grace. It is unconditional in that it is not God foreseeing or having foresight or foreknowledge of a human's decision to positively respond to the gospel. It is unconditional. It is by God's um, own counsel and will that he has chosen these people. And we'll have to get to that whenever we get to it. Like I said uh, many times before, all these points become connected, and so um, breaking them up becomes a little bit tricky. But quoting the Westminster Confession of Faith, we read, quote, All of those whom God hath predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ Yet, so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. And that's Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 10, paragraph 1. Uh, again, this point is seen in the Canons of Dort, uh, as well in the third and fourth head of doctrine. Article 11, in particular, reads this way, quote, Moreover, when God carries out this good pleasure in his chosen ones, or works true conversion in them, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling willing, and the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. End quote. The Canons of Dort also in Article 16 will point out that this is not coercion or an abolishment of the human will or its properties or bringing a person by force, but instead it is, quote, spiritually reviving, healing, reforming, and in a manner at once pleasing and powerful, bends it back. As a result, a ready and sincere obedience of the Spirit now begins to prevail, where before the rebellion and resistance of the flesh were completely dominant. It is in this that the true and spiritual restoration and freedom of our wills consist. End quote. And so for Calvinists, because God has determined to save a particular people, his determination will be accomplished, and his will may not be thwarted, nor will God be left to persuade and hope for the conversion of a particular people. Yet this effectual working of God is not one of nullifying the human will, but rather changing the human will, whereby man does not come to God unwillingly, but willingly. It is a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation to say otherwise. But that said, uh, there is something to be said about the number of Calvinists that I, I have seen who say, you know, God drags you to salvation, kicking and screaming kind of thing. 
But that is not what confessional Calvinism, if you want to call it that, would say according to Dort, the London Baptist Confession, the Westminster Confession, and so on and so forth. So Calvinists would respond to the Arminian charge that this is a violation of the human will or immoral by saying that this is God's intervention in the sinner's life to affect their will, and it's not immoral, as someone make it, but a gracious and necessary intervention. He frees people to be as they were intended to be, creatures in right relationship with God. Just as it is not immoral to call someone out of addiction, it is not immoral for God to intervene in a sinner's life in this way. So as it was stated, but it needs to be remembered, this is not a grace given to everyone, but it is a particular grace. It is an effectual calling and a special grace for the elect. Now, like Arminians, Calvinists will note texts such as John 6.44 and John 6.65 that point out that no man can go to Christ unless the Father draws or grants it to that individual. Furthermore, Calvinists will point out that in these passages, that all that the Father gives to Jesus, quote, will, end quote, come to Christ. Contrary to the interpretation we saw last week, the Calvinists will say that this is not saying that those who believe are then given and will come, but they will come because they are given, and that result that they will come to Christ is the result of God's call. So, in essence, the Calvinists will critique the Arminian position on John 6 by saying that the Arminian position reads too much into it and flips what is occurring. Jesus says that no one can come to the Father unless he is drawn or it is granted to the individual, and that all that the Father gives to Jesus will come to him and thus have faith. For the Calvinist, the Armenian flips this by saying that those who believe are then given and will come, but that doesn't make sense. Furthermore, Calvinists will look at the language of drawing and how it is used in various texts, such as Peter drawing out his sword in John 18.10, and Paul and Silas being dragged by a mob in Acts 16.19, 21.30, and so forth. So for the Calvinist, John 6.44 indicates that the Father efficaciously calls the elect to Christ and that Christ says that those who are called, quote, will, end quote, come, leaving little room for resistible grace. There is a certainty in that they will come. Another text on this point of irresistible grace is the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8.30, where we read, quote, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Sean Wright on this text states, quote, Romans 8.30 teaches it. Starting in verse 29, Paul moves from foreknowledge to predestination, to calling, to justification, to glorification. They are all united, and they are effective to accomplish their goal, and they result in the salvation of the elect. God's calling is as sure as his predestining, end quote. And that's uh, 40 questions about Calvinism by Sean Wright. So, because the calling is rooted in predestination, and those whom God calls will be justified, the task will be accomplished, according to the Calvinist. Another way to put it is that since this is predestined, that calling will be effective, and accomplishes task of calling, and also that which follows, that is justified. Those who are called will be justified. Now, all of this can be further clarified in understanding that Calvinists believe that God's grace is often resistible particularly the outward or general call of the gospel that goes out to all people. So we have the effectual call versus the general call. The effectual call and the general call are often distinguished. 
The former, that is the effectual call, is irresistible finally. We've already talked about how it can be resisted temporarily, right? But the latter, that is the general call, is resistible. For the Calvinist, uh, whenever we're looking at the golden chain of redemption in light of this, those who have been called for God's purpose and according to God's purpose cannot possibly mean everyone who has heard the gospel if everyone has been called. The assumption of the text is that those who are called receive this call positively. Furthermore, it is argued that a view that leaves predestination up to the foreknowledge of one's response makes this call incoherent. If God has predestined and called those whom he foreknew would respond positively, then why is the salvific call universal rather than particular anyway? The Arminian would say that this is necessary so that there is a responsibility for the rejection of the gospel, while the Calvinist would say that this responsibility stands regardless as the man is not choosing contrary to his nature. The man who resists God's general call is doing so by his nature. God has merely chosen to not extend mercy to those individuals, but enact judgment. And of course, this is not the last time we will see Romans 8. We'll talk about Romans 8 in more depth later on. But let's move on to the general versus effectual calling. So on the distinction between the general call and the special call, Wright says the following, quote, On the one hand, there is a general call, which refers to the call to all people to pay heed to the revelation of God. It is the offering of salvation in Christ to people, together with an invitation to accept Christ in repentance and faith, in order that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This genuine outward call of God occurs through creation and conscience, summoning people to acknowledge and honor their Creator. But it also occurs through God's verbal summons to sinners to repentance and faith in Christ, so that they may receive eternal life and be forgiven of their trespasses. This general outward call goes to all persons. It is a real summons to submit to God. When the gospel is extended, it includes the offer of salvation. Yet people resist it all the time because, quote, the gospel call goes to all people, but it is clearly not intended to be effectual for all of them, for we know that not all do in fact believe, end quote. So this distinction between the general call and the special call are also seen in the confessions of Calvinists, um, and that the confessions will point out that there are many who are called by the ministry of the word yet are not effectually drawn by spirit. Uh, further, it notes that they may have some common operations of the spirit, such as sharing in doctrine, understanding the faith and Christian life in the midst of a body of believers, yet they have not been effectually called and are ultimately unregenerate. On this distinction, Bruce Demirist points to the parable of the wedding banquet to demonstrate the dynamic, which is in Matthew 22, 1-14, and Luke 14, 16-24. Demirist argues that this parable distinguishes between God's universal, general call, and his particular, effectual call. Within the parable, the first group called in the parable resists the call as they are more concerned with worldly interest and indifferent. These invitees reject the invitation and were punished. Demiris continues, quote, Consequently, the king sent his servants to bring to the banquet the unfit and unworthy, an act that signifies the successful preaching of Jesus and his apostles to outcast Jews and Gentiles. The latter invitations accomplished the intended purpose, and that a crowd of people joined the king for the wedding feast, end quote. Uh, Demiris continues stating that the second and third calls to the feast involved the language of bringing in guests and making them come in, while the first group did not have this compelling movement. The parable ends with Jesus' words, for many are called, but few are chosen. To this, Demir states, quote, 
The call represents the larger group summoned by invitation. The chosen were the smaller group forcefully brought to the banquet. End quote. And so contrary to this irresistible general call, God calls some sovereignly to faith in Christ. And this call is internal, wherein God's call to draw people to Christ is always effective to accomplish its goal. The Calvinist argument is connected to God's purposes and his accomplishment of his will, and that God will not fail in his will to save those whom he has predestined. So this means that all these different aspects are complementary in this position. That means that foreknowledge and predestination are necessary components to fully appreciate the Calvinist contention with resistible grace. But Calvinists will also critique the Arminian conception that God has and is trying his best to bring people to him, but also failing when his salvific call is resisted. Now, because irresistible grace is linked closely with God's purposes and plans in the Calvinist position, various other texts are evoked, such as Jesus in John 10 when he speaks about being the good shepherd who knows his sheep. Uh, the text in question, which will also be brought to the forefront when discussing the atonement in Calvinism, notes the following. In verse 2, the shepherd of the sheep enters by the gate. In verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. In verse 3, the shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, the shepherd goes before them and the sheep follow him and know his voice. In verse 14, Jesus is the shepherd, quote, who knows his own and my own know me, end quote. In verse 16, Jesus explains that he has other sheep to bring and they, quote, will listen to my voice, end quote. In verse 26, Jesus explains that unbelievers, quote, do not believe because you are not among my sheep, end quote. In verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And then verse 28 again, No one will snatch them out of my hand. So the Calvinists will point out that firstly, that God's plan is expressed in both the coming of the shepherd, the calling and gathering of the sheep, the atonement for the sheep, um, though I did not list it out here, but he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, the, the preservation of the sheep, and the explanation of unbelievers to Jesus' contemporaries. That is that there are unbelievers because they are not Jesus' sheep. So first we hear that the sheep hear and recognize the voice of the shepherd who calls the sheep by name, i.e. individually, and the shepherd leads them. The sheep follow the shepherd as they know his voice, and the shepherd knows each sheep and they know him. When speaking to the unbelievers, he explains that their unbelief as the result of them not being among his sheep and lastly, Jesus says that the sheep will not perish, but instead will never perish and never be snatched from his hand as the protective shepherd. It is in the calling and the knowledge between Jesus and the sheep that becomes a point for the Calvinists on the effectual call. This in conjunction with texts such as 2 Timothy 2.19, wherein Paul states that, quote, the Lord knows who are his, becomes a justification for irresistible grace or effectual calling for the Calvinists. Now, like every section, we can't cover every text that would be utilized for these positions. So let's move on to Calvinism and resistible grace. When it comes to addressing resistible grace, Calvinists generally find no issue with the typical text cited wherein man is demonstrated to have resisted God in his call. As we noted earlier, Calvinists make a distinction between a general call and an effectual call, the former of which can be resisted. Further, in dialogues between Calvinists and classical Arminians, where the Arminians believe in total depravity, Calvinists' objections to resistible grace often focus upon a rejection of universal prevenient grace as presented by Arminians, 
because prevenient grace acts as an important counter to irresistible grace. This is to say that usually you won't find debates between resistible and irresistible grace from the Calvinists, but you'll have them just questioning overall universal prevenient grace. Because both Arminians and Calvinists agree that man is totally depraved and needs grace in order to respond to God, and because the effectual calling is, in some sense, similar to prevenient grace, discussion centers around the extent of this prevenient grace or effectual calling. Is it only bestowed upon the elect or the chosen, which again will be discussed later, or is it universal prevenient grace? The Arminian position of prevenient grace allows for the Arminian to affirm total depravity, and yet that grace aids all people so that they can respond to the gospel, and it makes people savable by bringing people into a place where they are moved from unable to respond to being able to respond. So it is through prevenient grace that allows for libertarian freedom of the will and total depravity to exist in harmony. But Calvinists have rejected this understanding of prevenient grace because of a lack of scriptural support. While there are texts that are used to try to infer prevenient grace, the Calvinists will say, Calvinists would argue that none work in favor of the position when pressed further. The Arminian, when defending universal prevenient grace, will use some of the texts we mentioned last time and other texts that would, quote, necessitate the concept of a universal prevenient grace, namely texts that speak about God commanding and desiring all people to repent, such as Acts 17.20 and 2 Peter 3.9. These, according to the Arminian, would indicate the ability has been given to people to respond to the gospel, along with texts such as Wesley's uh, often quoted text of John 1.9 and the often cited quote, uh, quoted text of John 12, 32, wherein Jesus Christ says that he will draw all men to himself. So for the Calvinists, the text used for this concept of universal prevenient grace failed to make the case for this Arminian position. For example, they would say that John Wesley cited John 1, 9, which reads, quote, the true light which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world does not amount to an inward work of illumination and enablement. Instead, this is describing a general illumination of Christ coming into the world, likened to the exposure from a light. This is seen within the context of John verses 10 through 11 in the same chapter, wherein the text demonstrates that this light was not a means of enablement, but exposure as, quote, some are shown to be evil because they did not know or receive Jesus, end quote. And that is a citation from Thomas Schreiner, um, Does Scripture Teach Prevenient Grace in the Wesleyan Sense? Schreiner continues by pointing out that men who are evil shrink from this light because they do not want to be exposed in verse 20, and that those who practice truth come to this light in verse 21. Quote, the light exposes and reveals the moral and spiritual state of one's heart. It shows where people are in their relationship to God, end quote. And so the Calvinists would say that contextually this verse cannot be a advocation for universal premium grace. So what about John 12, 32, which reads, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Calvinists will typically point out that the less likely option is the suggestion that this all refers to every individual, but rather, in conjunction with texts such as John 10, 16, and 11, 52, it refers to every type of person, namely Gentiles and Jews. Michael states, quote, Another recourse is to understand all in relation to the ethnic groups rather than individuals, that is, both Jews and Greeks. This could be supported by an appeal to Paul, especially in Romans, for whom all frequently comes to mean Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile alike. For example, Romans 1.18, 2.9, uh, 10, 3.9, 3.23, 10.12, and 11.32. 
It can also appeal, obviously, to the actual presence of the Greeks in the narrative context in verse 20 through 22. This option has much in its favor, and many modern interpreters have adopted it. Michaels also points out that the verb, I will draw, is in fact the likely key to the meaning of the verse. Those drawn are a specific group, and those who actually come to Jesus in faith for salvation. The repeated expression, to come to me, in 637, 644, and 665 corresponds to the promise here that Jesus will draw these people to himself, suggesting the same specific group is in mind here. If so, then all is qualified by the previous references to those drawn or given to Jesus by the Father, that is, believers, hence the translations, them all. This point is not that every human being is drawn, but that those who are drawn by the Father are drawn by the Son. Instead of the Father drawing believers to Jesus, he himself now, lifted up from the earth, draws them all to himself. As he put it earlier, stating, I will raise them up on the last day, and Jesus will draw believers first to the cross on which he is lifted up, but beyond that to wherever he is going, where I am there, my servants will be in verse 26. And that is um, uh, Ramsey Michaels on the Gospel of John, New International Commentary on the New Testament. Um, So this is to say that Calvinists find no scriptural warrant for prevenient grace on the basis of key Arminian text, which by necessity excludes a resistible grace in the sense that Arminians present it. Before moving into the questions of texts such as Acts 17.20 and 2 Peter 3.9 and God's will, we can note a few more critiques of prevenient grace that Calvinists present. For the Calvinists, the Arminian notion gives man something in which he can boast about. Um, Every man receives grace, but it is only the one who made a good and wise choice to follow Christ who will be saved. And that man, for whatever reason embracing the gift of faith, was better, smarter, and deserving of credit for heeding this call while the others did not. Furthermore, Calvinists will critique their Arminian position that election is based on those who will have faith, yet faith is a gift from God. Sam Storms critiques as well, saying the Arminian contends that God foreknows both that some are and others are not going to believe in Christ in response to the gospel. He also confirms that God knows why they respond either in belief or unbelief, for God is omniscient and he knows the secrets and inner motives of the heart. God also knows what it is in the presentation of the gospel that proves successful in persuading some to say yes, and what it is that proves unsuccessful in persuading those who say no. The question then is this, if God truly desires for all people to be saved in the way the Arminian contends, and if he knows what it is in the means of persuasion contained in the gospel that brings people to say yes, then why doesn't he orchestrate the presentation of the gospel in such a way that it will succeed in persuading all people to believe? The point is this, Surely the God who perfectly knows every human heart is capable of creating a world in which the gospel will prove successful in every case. And if God desires for all to believe in the same way that the Arminian contends, then why didn't he? End quote. This again ties back to the critique that in the Arminian position, God desires for these things to be so, but he is failing and he is merely trying his best to persuade people. And for the Calvinist, the Arminian conception of God has God and his desires being thwarted by the will of man. The Calvinists will point out that in Calvinism, God has chosen to show mercy to particular people, and he succeeds in executing his will and redeeming a particular people. While some Arminians will strawman the Calvinist position by saying that there are, quote, just a few who are elect, end quote, Calvinists respond in that in the Arminian schema, there is no limit to how low the number of saved could be, especially in those positions of Arminianism that holds that one can lose salvation. So here we move into the discussion on the two wills of God. It is at this point that we can discuss 2 Peter, 
um, 3.9 and how Calvinists understand this text along with other texts that are similar. But this is basically how Calvinists understand these texts, um, specifically in the concept of God's two wills, which will be explained. Um, but before going further than this, it is worth prefacing this section by pointing out that there is a critique levied at Calvinists that this is a um, specific construct that's made up that has no basis in scripture, but this critique doesn't hold up whenever we view the Arminian position as also having a twofold understanding of God's will as well, and they use it to apply it to the libertarian freedom of the will. And just as they could logically argue from their position, the Calvinists can logically argue for their position of the two wills of God. So to refresh on the point of the Arminian position of the, the two wills, um, God has the antecedent will that involves those things that God approvingly wills, and then he has his consequent will, which involves those things that he merely allows. So with that briefly pointed out, we can now discuss the will of God and how it is understood in a twofold sense in Calvinism and what the biblical basis is for that position. So for this discussion, we're going we're gonna to lean in on the explanation by Sean Wright in his uh, 40 Questions About Calvinism. Quote, the Bible teaches us from our perspective, God's will, which is always one, would be understood in a twofold sense. First is his revealed to us in scripture will. Second is his hidden from us, known only to himself, secret will. This twofold understanding leads us to the conclusion that there are two wills in God regarding human salvation. At the same time that he desires salvation of all persons, the Lord determines to only save his chosen ones. End quote. So within the Calvinist framework, God is not influenced in different directions as we are. Said God has all the power to do whatever he desires to do, and God's will has no causes outside of his wise decision that something should occur. Um, Wright will state that God's will then is one, for his will takes place according to his desires, his determination, his counsel, his purpose. And he'll be quoting, you know, Ephesians 1 5, 1 11, Isaiah 46 10, Psalm 115 3. Psalm 135, 6, and so on. This reality with the seemingly conflicting picture of man and devils disobeying God's will leads to an understanding that there is a distinction to be made between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. And this is described as follows, quote, On the one hand, God has an eternally planned will, decreed or secret because it has been ordained from eternity is known perfectly only unto him, which will surely come to pass. It is God's decree, his eternal purpose, by which he foreordains everything to come to pass. On the other hand, God has a will in which he tells us what he desires for us to do. This is why it is called his revealed or preceptive will, since it has been made known to us and it comes to us in the form of commands or the expectations of how we should live before God. But he does not sovereignly decree that we should do this will. Frame concludes that, quote, this decretive will cannot be successfully opposed. It will certainly take place. It is possible, however, and often the case, for creatures to disobey God's preceptive will, end quote. And that is also, let me double check, that's also Sean Wright. Um, Wright further explains that this distinction protects God's integrity as well as human responsibility. And then he quotes Dabney for explanation, quote, Every man is impelled to make the distinction, for otherwise, either alternative is odious and absurd. Say that God has no secret decretive will, and he wishes just what he commands and nothing more. And we represent him as a being whose desires are perpetually crossed and baffled, yea, trampled on, the most harassed, embarrassed, and impotent being in the universe. 
In other words, because we clearly see God's will constantly being disobeyed, there has to be a distinction being made. Otherwise, we have an impotent being in the universe as Dabney expresses. And he further states that if you deny the other part of this distinction, then you represent God as gaining all the iniquities done on earth and in hell. So what about the scriptural warrant for this distinction? Um, Wright points out there are various texts where God, quote, means for something to happen, a particular result to occur, even when man is disobedient, such as in Genesis 50:20. And a case study can be sound in the event of Pharaoh's hardened heart in the Exodus. God's will is that Pharaoh let the Israelites go, yet the Lord also tells Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let his people go. Right here states, quote, we must surmise then that there is a will of command, let my people go, and the will of decree, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, end quote. When this is applied to salvation, right looks to Luke 13 and 34 and Matthew 11, 25 through 26. The former text reads, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. The latter text reads, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. So Wright points out that these are seemingly contradictory declarations and states, quote, the conclusion we come to then is that Jesus in some sense really willed for both of these things. He really desired all of Jerusalem to be saved, but at the same time, he willed that only certain people in Israel would be saved, end quote. Furthermore, quote, from this, we discern that there are two types of biblical texts. There are those that teach God's universal saving will and desire for all to be saved, such as Ezekiel 18.23, which you can compare with Ezekiel 13.11 and John 3.16. And there are also texts that teach God's unconditional election of particular individuals to salvation. We remember Romans 9.15-16, through 16, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Piper notes that when we hold together texts such as Deuteronomy 28.63 and Ezekiel 18.23, we are struck by the inescapable fact that in some sense God does not delight in the death of the wicked, and in some sense he does. See Deuteronomy 28.63 and 2 Samuel 2.25, end quote. And this understanding can be applied to 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.3-4. With this all said, while there can be a critique upon the Calvinists for this tension, uh, this tension is also found in Arminianism, but its beginning and ending point differs from the Calvinist. Wright summarizes, again, quote, Both Arminians and Calvinists admit that there are, from our perspective, the two sorts of will in God. But evangelical Arminians do not believe God's desire for the salvation of all persons will lead to universalism. Rather, they reason something like this. What does God will more than saving all? The answer given by Arminians is that human self-determination and the possible resulting love relationship with God are more valuable than saving people by sovereign, effectious grace. In this scheme, God's will to let humans, aided by prevenient grace, make their libertarian choice for Jesus takes priority over his will to save people. Calvinism is different. For Calvinists, according to Piper, the greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory and wrath and mercy and the humbling of man so that he can enjoy giving all credit to God for his salvation in 1 Corinthians 1.29. 
Arminians emphasize the priority of libertarian human freedom. Calvinists emphasize the priority of divine sovereign freedom. Piper is correct. Since not all people are saved, we must choose whether we believe with the Arminians that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to human self-determination or whether we believe with the Calvinists that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to the glorification of his sovereign grace. And on that point, um, our conclusion on Calvinism and grace can go like this. Unlike Arminianism and Calvinism, grace is irresistible in particular. The special work of God's grace only goes out to those who have been called by God, and because God will not fail to bring a people to himself, those who are called are likewise justified and ultimately glorified. While a man who is effectually called can't resist for a time, he will ultimately come to faith. And this is by will, not against his will. Furthermore, while the effectual calling of God is irresistible, the general call of God is resistible and often resisted. So that'll wrap up our discussion on um, irresistible grace. Next week, we will talk about conversion and regeneration very briefly before moving into predestination and election. God bless you all, and you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.